0: I love that church is like, is like actual family in a lot of ways, um, and I just like that. Every Sunday I show up and we got some family, um, some that are literally related to us and some that are just, we've been around for it since they were pudgy little seventh graders, you know? Um, so um, I, I, I'm, I'm wondering, in fact I feel pretty confident in the reality that some of you guys may have heard these words before. Um, maybe you've even felt them or expressed them, but uh, there's this there's this, statement uh, that has rung in my ears uh, every time I've heard it. You don't know my life and you don't know me. You don't know my life and you don't know me. Have, have you ever uh, heard someone say those words? Um, or have you ever at, like felt those words inside you trying to boil out? Or have you ever actually articulated those words with, with, with even your mouth? You don't know my life and you don't know me. A few years ago when I was still a high school pastor here, we had this kid uh, start coming to youth group. His name was Johnny. Uh, Johnny's mom wasn't in the picture at all and Johnny, uh, when he was a little boy, his dad went to prison. And so Johnny's grandma ended up with custody of him and she deserves a lot of honor for everything that she did uh, to stand in the gap for him and to pull things together for him, but she didn't have a lot to pull together for Johnny. She was living on social security and she was living check to check Um, And she was getting older, and as she was getting older, her fuse was getting shorter and shorter and shorter. She didn't have as much patience as she did when she was younger in life. Um, And her body was beginning to fail her, and in addition to that, her mind was even beginning to fail her a little bit. And so because of that, Johnny largely had to figure out how to kind of raise himself. Um, And as a result of raising himself mostly, um, Johnny was in some ways way more mature than the average 15-year-old. Uh, which I don't know if you've ever like interacted with a kid who's more mature than they're supposed to be. There's a weird combination of like, oh, you're so proud of them for that, but then also it's sad when when you realize why if it's a situation like that. Um, I've been to villages where you have like four-year-olds who just carry machetes around and just chop things down because they know, I'm literally like, that's just what happens. And you're like, oh, someone should probably keep you from carrying a machete, but you know how to use it better than I do, so what am I gonna do about it? and this was Johnny's experience since he had raised himself in a lot of ways. He was pretty mature. He knew how to make sure there was clothes on his back. He knew how to make sure there was food in his belly. He knew how to get across the city on his own with public transit or a skateboard or walking. He knew how to stay relatively safe in particularly unsafe circumstances. Uh, but Johnny was also way more immature than a, than a normal 15-year-old at the same time. He was like a roller coaster inside and out. Uh, he didn't know how to, how to like, show up for school, even though he was honestly like, probably smarter than the, than the average kid. He didn't know how to do well in school because he didn't know how to show up. He didn't know how to engage in things that weren't interesting to him. He didn't know how to see value in what was happening at school. Um, and even though he was one of the friendliest, most likable people I've ever met, he didn't know how to maintain relationships, much less healthy relationships, because he had really not had anybody show him how to do that. Um, And like I said, he was one of the most extroverted friendly people, probably like top 5% most friendly and extroverted people I've ever met. I don't think I could forget the first day he came to youth group. It was like a tornado of extrovert just came right in, tearing through the whole room. Uh, Within just a few minutes, everybody knew him. And he had introduced himself and learned the names of probably about half of the people in the room. Um, And instantly, he realized like something is different in this place, like, he would, he would just say it, because it was so obvious and so shocking to him. It was like, it was like a little kid who just, like, has gone to, to Disneyland for the first time, and he just can't hold back the excitement of, this is so different. Disneyland is not like my living room. Um, and that's kind of how he seemed to feel in youth group. It's like, this is full of, like, genuine and searing, sincere and kind and interesting people who are also interested in me. People who are vulnerable often, but who aren't insecure in their vulnerability, at least not too insecure to be vulnerable. And he would ask us what was going on and we would just say, well, I mean, Jesus. Like, There's something about the reality that Jesus is in this place that enables us to, to have those kind of interactions and enables us to love each other and to love people a little bit more. It's really not anything fancy about us. And he was so excited about that. He start, I've never seen someone dive into community or, or figure out what it might mean to follow Jesus more quickly than Johnny. Um, But then after a few weeks of being there, I realized Johnny started to build this perspective that was a little bit isolating. He started to become of the opinion that maybe everybody here is different because their lives have been different. He started to think, you know, all these people, they're like goody two-shoes and everything's easy and everything has just been skating for them their whole life. And and so the, the, the things that they have to say about Jesus, maybe those do, but maybe they don't apply to me because they haven't gone through what I've gone through. And I would hear him with a certain amount of frequency say these exact words, just kind of out of the blue when things got a little too real for him. He would say, you don't know my life and you don't know me. The irony of those profoundly isolating words is that I think that they probably express a universal human sentiment, don't they? My guess is there are a large number of people in this room who have actually said those exact words before. My guess is everybody in this room knows the feelings that precede those words, don't we? That feeling of loneliness, that feeling of isolation, that desperate but hopeless cry for an advocate, for someone who would empathize, for someone who could stand in your shoes and say, I get it, and I'm here with you. And yet we tend to just feel so alone regardless of how many other people feel that way. Uh, if you know me, you know that I'm a, a teacher, um, and, and what that means like by personality, it means that when I learn something interesting, I can't stop trying to tell everybody about it. Um, if you're a good yeah, you hear Alan laughing because he's the same, um, and him and I, will just sit there and we'll just talk forever about the same things. Um, and just teach each other the same things. Uh, if you're a close friend of mine, I'm sorry. It means that if you're there with me, like the week that you learned some, that I learned something cool, you're probably going to hear it eight times. If you're my wife, I'm so sorry. Uh, she has to deal with this all the time. She spent a year with me in Southeast Asia, and I didn't have any nerdy like teacher friends. Uh, and nobody would be like Alan Heller that I could just sit with and talk to all the time, and they'd be like, "Oh yeah, interesting," you know. So she had to hear me just do that to her the whole year. Like, just tell her all the cool things I was learning. Um, And she's a wonderful woman. Um, She just said, oh, interesting. Yeah, I'm very interested to hear that thing that you already told me three times this morning. Um, And one of the things that I feel that way about that I'll probably, like when I'm 95 years old, I'll probably be telling all of my friends and family as though it was the first time they'd heard it, uh, is how beautiful the beginning of the Bible is. Genesis chapter one. I, I think it is, it probably sits on, on a tier with the most masterful literature that has ever been written, that no ink has ever touched paper to create anything better than that, anything more beautiful than that introductory poem in the Bible. And you guys have probably heard me say this before, uh, if you know me at all, I think I've even preached it, even though I only preach every so often, it still just comes out of me. Um, But it starts off, right, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the waters. In the ancient Hebrew mindset... Uh, Waters, they're they're a metaphor for chaos. You can imagine you're a fisherman who's in a little boat that you carved out with your own two hands, and you're on the sea, and all of a sudden there's wave and there's winds, and you're scared that you're terrified that it's going to capsize because you don't know what's underneath the surface of those waters. You can see how quickly waters become a metaphor for chaos. And so the Bible opens up in this setting of darkness, of void, Formlessness and of chaos. I want you for just a a minute to try to like put yourself in the emotional place that that setting is trying to put you in. That the author wants you, what the author wants you to feel in that dark, void, lonely, chaotic place. You feel the isolation. You feel the sense of man. There's just there's nobody else here. Why does the Bible open up this way, right? It, it doesn't open up with you know in the beginning God was in a meadow, and there was a felt board, and a, a snuggie, you know, and it, it, everything was so warm. You know, it doesn't. It it it's the op- a formless, void, darkness, chaos. Why? Why does it open like that? Well, it doesn't stop there, does it, right? That's just the beginning of the setting. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the, surf- the surface of the waters, and the Spirit of God was over the surface of the deep. Right there, in the exact same place as the darkness, is the Spirit of God. God is not repulsed by the darkness, He's not afraid by the, of the darkness. He's not absent in the darkness, he is there in the darkness. Again, why why does it start like this? I, I think that perhaps one of the reasons is because you and I spend so much time in the darkness. Don't we? You and I are so familiar with the darkness. We know what it's like to be in the darkness and when you're in the darkness, you can't see anything or anyone. And so we tend to believe when we're in the darkness that we are alone. We tend to feel feelings of isolation. We tend to cry out, wishing that there was someone who could stand with us, but feeling like there couldn't possibly be. In the darkness, we tend to feel the kind of feelings that might precede a statement like, you don't know my life, and you don't know me. I think God wants us to know that in the darkness, he is not absent, he is right there in that place sitting in our darkness. A few weeks after uh, Johnny started coming, to, camp, coming to, to church, we had summer camp, and Johnny was able to join us for summer camp. Um, and we, we went to California, and we camped in this really beautiful spot, like just across the Pacific Coast Highway from the beach uh, in the woods, and we had like outdoor sessions every morning and every evening. Normally at summer camp, right, we have like kind of mini churches in the morning and at night. Um, and we did that, the summer camp, but in the morning sessions, we did something a little bit different. Um, instead of having a sermon, I had one of my interns just tell a story from the Bible. And so my intern, he, he told this story of the prodigal son, right? The story of this son who decides to cash out early on his inheritance and in so doing to shame and spit on his family and just kind of turn his back. And he goes to this other country and he wastes all his money on foolish decisions. And then there's a famine that makes things even worse. And now he's in the darkness. He's hungry. He's feeding pigs and thinking, maybe I should eat their food because I'm that hungry, it looks a little good. And then he thinks, maybe I can go back to my father and be a servant in his house and just live in shame because at least then I'll have a full belly. And so he goes back but when he finds his father, he's not met with shame but with celebration. And his father becomes an advocate for him, actually covers him in a robe and covers him from the shame that he caused himself intercedes between that son and the community to say this is my son and we're so excited that he's home. We're not angry that he shamed us. And so when that story was done, my intern, he, he didn't tell a, preach a sermon. He didn't unpack it. He didn't exegete it. He didn't have all these, you know, really complicated questions to get to the heart of what it means. He just said, does anybody have a story like this from their life? And one by one, three of my leaders told their story of their darkness and how Jesus met them in that place. They told stories of broken and breaking families. They told stories of, of addiction. They told stories of things that just are so, the kind of things, the, the wounds that can last a lifetime. They told stories that involved things like alcoholism and partying and drug addiction. One of my leaders told the story of how, you know, he grew up um, with his mom having, you know, drug Uh, drug dealer boyfriend after drug dealer boyfriend and at one point in time a gun was pulled to his head and then fast forwarded a little bit and he's you know a teenager and he's on the streets and he's homeless and he has a heroin addiction. And each of these leaders in their turn shared about how Jesus met them in that darkness. It wasn't that they got out of the darkness and started coming to church and scrubbed their life clean and then everything got better. It was that when when things were so dark and so broken and so hopeless, That all of a sudden they realized that Jesus was right there with them in that darkness. And he was their advocate, that he locked arms with them, and they were able to walk out of the darkness by his strength and not theirs. And I watched as every time one of these leaders told their story, Johnny's jaw dropped two inches lower, it seemed. And he pulled me aside as soon as that session was done. And he said, I I, I gotta talk to you, man. He said, I I was so convinced that all these people had had these perfect lives, but but I'm hearing these stories and realizing that that's not true, right? I was so convinced that they didn't know my life. But now I'm thinking they do know my life. In fact, I've never been homeless. I've never been addicted to heroin. I've never had anybody pull a gun on me. That guy's life seems like it's been harder than my life. How did they get from there to here? And I said the same thing they said. I said Jesus was their advocate. He met them in the darkness, and he can do the same for you. Uh, Ryan last week did a really beautiful job. If you didn't hear that message on the fact that Jesus is our intercessor, I'd encourage you to go hear that. And if you did hear it, and you didn't spend the whole week just chewing on it, I'd encourage you, set aside like 15, 20, 30 minutes sometimes this week, and just think about, just meditate on, just, just imagine the reality that Jesus is praying for you. That'll do something really cool in you to realize that Jesus is sitting there interceding for you. Um, today, um, we're c- kind of continuing on right in that series called Good God. And the whole point of that series, Good God, is to really just try to find some of the things in God that are so amazing and to just look at them. To just let our jaws drop as we stare at the beauty of these different facets of God and let it change something in you. The same way like if, it's, if you're watching the sunset, just watching that can, can change something, can bring a little healing, can't it? Or like just a stroll through the garden, the way that that can make something shift inside of you, or the way that you can sit on the beach and you can listen to the waves crashing on the shore, and it just does something good, right? Man, I love that. I, every once in a while, I'm just like hanging out in the morning and I just think, I just want to be on the beach. It's usually because my wife is saying she wants to be on the beach and because we live in Phoenix that doesn't have any beaches. Um, But it just changes something in you, doesn't it? And that's what this whole series is. We're just trying to look at the beautiful things of God and just let it change something in us. And today we're just talking about the reality that Jesus is our advocate. We're just trying to look at that, at the beauty of his advocacy, the beauty of the fact that he hangs with us in the darkness. Um, and, And there's a subtle but important difference between an intercessor and an advocate, and there's definitely some overlap, but I would say this. An intercessor is someone who stands in the gap between you and another party on your behalf. An advocate is someone who stands with you on your behalf. An intercessor might be like someone who goes with you to the bank and says, hey, you should really give this guy a loan. He's great. When I was like in second grade, I lent him $5 and he paid me back the $5. He's totally trustworthy. Uh, that would be an intercessor. An advocate is someone who goes with you to the bank and says, I'm gonna co-sign the loan with this guy. Um, I'm gonna do everything I can to make sure that they are able to succeed, and if they fail, charge it to my account. Uh, does anybody watch Shark Tank? Uh, I really enjoy Shark Tank. I don't watch it as much as I would like to. I don't know why. I just never think, oh, I should watch Shark Tank. Uh, but it's so interesting, right? Because sometimes they're really mean and sometimes they're really nice. So you never know exactly what you're gonna get, and you hear these really interesting, creative ideas um, and if you watch Shark Tank long enough, uh, as you have these different investors, right, who people come and they make a pitch and they say, okay, well, you know, I, I, I like you and I like your pitch and I think you can succeed, so here's a bunch of money you know, here's an investment. Um, but every once in a while something interesting happens uh, where someone has a really good idea, but it seems to most of the, of the investors that they don't have the experience to pull it off. And so all but one of the, of the sharks, all but one of the investors will pass on them. And one of them will say, you know, um, here's, here's my offer to you. Here's the investment. Here's the amount of money I'm willing to invest in you and your business and your idea. But it doesn't come alone. Um, I'm also going to mentor you. We're going to meet once a week. And I'm going to make sure that you have everything you need to pull this off. That's an advocate. Someone who says, I'm going to fight with you. And that is what Jesus does for us. Um, in 1 John uh, chapter one, verse five, and we'll skip around a little bit, uh, but the verses will be up on the screen if it's working. Okay, That screen's been given trouble, it's fun. Um, uh, So it says this. It says, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. John is every bit as weird as I am about the beginning of Genesis. I guarantee you he was like 70 years old when he passed away. Uh, and I guarantee he was telling her, hey, have you guys heard the beginning of Genesis? It's really cool. Uh, and all his friends were like, dude, yes, yes. Every time you write something, you open it up by referencing that. That's what he's doing right here. God is light in him. There is no darkness. He wants us to, to remember, to feel the feelings that we feel in the beginning of that poem. And he says, he goes on a few verses later, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's saying, hey guys, here's the thing. Like, remember that God who was there in the darkness with you, who brought light into the darkness? He's your advocate. He's fighting for you. And we have to own up to, we have to acknowledge and realize the fact that some of the darkness in our life we have caused by our own sin. But if you do sin, even after He's helped you climb out of it, if you do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus, the righteous one. And He actually clothes us in His righteousness when we don't have righteousness. He gives us the capacity to climb out of sin and then when we fall back into it, he gives us the capacity to keep going and to continue being righteous even though we don't have any righteousness of our own. He is able to advocate for us against the darkness that is caused by our own sin. But there's darkness that's caused by things other than our own sin, isn't there? You might say that's great, cool, but the reality of my situation is even if I stop sinning today, I would still be stuck in darkness. You know, I never sinned again for the rest of my life. The darkness that weighs on me the most, it has nothing to do with my sin. All right, like, like if I, you know, there, there's darkness that comes from our own sin. If there's a big muscly guy over there and I walk up to him and I say, you're stupid, and I punch him in the face and he punches me back and it probably hurts a lot more because he's got big muscles. Um, that's, that's my fault, right? The darkness that I just brought on myself for my own sin. But if he just walks up to me and says you're ugly, I don't like you, and punches me in the face, that's, that's I didn't do, I didn't do I, it, in fact, I was actively trying to cover up my face with as much hair as I could find, and yet he still managed to punch me. So like, I didn't, I didn't cause that, right? And we, we all know this. We all have experienced darkness that comes from the sin of other people. We're right, we're right now watching that happen on an international scale where an entire nation is suffering because of the sins of one man. And it feels like no actions of mine can change this. And then there's darkness that has nothing to do with anybody's sin, right? Like cancer is just cancer. Right? There's no person to blame for that. Just 5G, you know? That's the only thing you can really... And microwaves and stuff. Just kidding. Uh, there's nobody to blame on that, it's just, it's just darkness. The world is broken. So what does Jesus do in that place? We could talk about the resurrection that we have hoped for, we could talk about the day when he comes back and says, behold, I make all things new. We could talk about the fact that Jesus intervenes in miraculous as well as natural ways in our lives to change the circumstances, but, but we would still be wanting, wouldn't we, because there are some circumstances that just don't change. And we could stare at those, and, and, but I'm not even gonna touch those realities of the resurrection and realities of miracles and the realities of Jesus intervening and helping in dark circumstances, I'm not even gonna touch those today because there's this other facet that we miss that is so beautiful. That's every bit as much just worth staring at. See, he's actually with us in the darkness. Uh, when I was studying for... Um, for this message, I came across this study that they had done with uh, patients who had fibromyalgia. Um, and what they did is they put him in one of those really cool hats with the wires. It's like, you know, Mad Max is being fashion forward and stuff like that. Um, he's heading to Paris and going to strut his stuff and show you all, you know, how cool it is. Like one of those things with all the wires. They don't work on me. There's too much dreadlocks in the way. Um, I actually had one of those on once. It, they didn't know what to do. <laughs> um, but, uh, Uh, They would put them in one of those hats with the wires to uh, scan their brain, Um, and then they would expose their elbow to heat, which apparently, if you have fibromyalgia, doesn't feel great. Um, And then they would ask the patients to rank their pain on a scale of 1 to 10. Um, And in the control group, they did this alone in a room. But in the experimental group, uh, the patients, they, um, they had their significant other sitting right with them holding their hand. And what they found is that the patients in the experimental group, uh, they, not only did they report a lower level of pain, but their brain scans were showing that they were actually experiencing less pain just from having their significant other sitting with them in the room holding their hand. There is something about having someone with you that literally makes it not hurt so bad. Interesting fact, they ran the same exact study uh, on patients with migraines and found that the significant others had zero positive impact on the people with headaches. Um, my suspicion is it's because the significant others may have caused those headaches in the first place. <laughs> my evidence for that is having asked my wife who causes most of the headaches in her life. Um, it's, it's definitely me. Um, but isn't it beautiful that there's something about just having someone with you in the pain? right, that just makes it hurt not so bad. It's funny how, you know, when we're little kids, we go to our mom for, you know, kiss the boo boos, make it better, and then we grow up and feel like, oh, that couldn't possibly have worked. But little kids know that works. It's all better. And we grow out of that. But but actually, there's something about having someone who empathizes, who sits with you, who advocates, who feels your pain, that literally makes it not hurt so bad. Uh, In the book Uh, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortlund, the author, this is the book that we've really kind of used as inspiration for this series. Uh, The author, he says this, He says, Perhaps looking at the evidence of your life, you don't know what to conclude except that this mercy of God in Christ has passed you up. Maybe you have been deeply mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed by the one person you should have been able to trust, abandoned, taken advantage of. Perhaps you carry a pain that will never heal till you are dead. If my life is any evidence of the mercy of God in Christ, you might think, I'm not impressed. To you, I say the evidence of Christ's mercy towards you is not your life. The evidence of his mercy towards you is his. Mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed, abandoned eternally in your place. Your circumstances might not be getting any better. Jesus does not promise that he will fix all the circumstances. He does do that, but he doesn't do that all the time. And you might look at him and you might say, you don't know my life, but how can you look him in the face? How can you look the one in the face who, who was tortured for you, who suffered for you, who lived for you, who was broken for you, who was isolated and abandoned and buried the weight of your sin and shame? How can we look at, in the eyes of the one who was literally murdered for us and say, you don't know my life? He does know your life. There is no place you can stand that he has not stood before. There is no place that you can stand that he does not stand right beside you. He knows your life. And he is sitting there in the pain, squeezing your hand, making it just a little bit better. Because he is your advocate. So you say, okay, cool. Um, Jesus is my advocate against uh, those things. Maybe Jesus knows my life. That's cool. But he doesn't know me. How could he possibly know me? Because there are things that are so deep in my heart that I've hidden that nobody has ever heard. Because I've never spoken them out loud. He doesn't know me even if he does know my life. About a week and a half ago, we were sitting in staff meeting and Cliff had this really cool experience that he gave me permission to share with you guys. Um, we, were, we were talking about like lies and truth and these words that people speak over us and, and learning to figure out how to like, discard the lies that people speak. And Cliff said, well, what, what happens though when the words that you're hearing in your heart, they came from someone that God put in your life? And you can't get rid of them because you feel like, well, God put that person in my life, maybe this is true. And he said, I remember so vividly the time that my mom, in angry and colorful words, said to me, you will never amount to anything. And he said, she's since passed away having never taken those words back. He said, anytime I start to get some momentum or some trajectory in life, I just deflate when I hear those words coming up from the darkness of my own heart. And I just think, man, is that, is that true? and I just can't move forward. So what do I do with those? And so we all just had this really strong sense that the Spirit of God was wanting to speak over Cliff the words of a good and tender mother to counter the broken words of his mother who loved him very much and who, who he still loves very much to this day but was broken and failed in that space. And so we spent like forever and a half just speaking word after word after word that we felt was coming right from the Lord over Cliff. And the moment when his tears went from welling up to rolling down his cheek to then actually sobbing was when Nick said this. He said, you know, I have two things I feel like the Spirit wants to say to you right now. One is this really obvious thing, and frankly, I can't remember it um, because it was just obvious. If you know Cliff, it just made sense. Um, He said, the other thing, though, is I feel like the Lord is saying is a secret that you've never even spoken That nobody knows because it's so deep in your heart. He said, Cliff, I feel like the Lord is saying that you believe that you've proved your mom right in this regard. And that's when he started sobbing. And Cliff said, but I feel like the Spirit is saying that Jesus has proved her wrong in this regard. Jesus is our advocate even against the darkest condemnation that our own heart brings against us. I wanna ask you to do something really quick. Uh, I want you to pull out your phone, uh, if you would, and open your notes app um, or pen and paper if you have that. You can delete this note the moment you write it if you want, um, you can scribble it out the moment you're done writing it down with a pen if you want, um, and we won't take long for this because my guess is it'll come to you quickly. I want you to write down the condemnation that your own heart brings against you. Just write that down. It's okay if you didn't even wanna write it down. In 1 John 3, verse 20, it says this. This is just a few verses after the ones that we've already read today. It says this, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. I love that, because if it just said whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, I think we would say, yeah. That's what everybody says, but they don't really know. They don't really know what's in there. They don't really know what a failure I am. They don't really know how weak I am. They don't know how ugly I am. They don't know how sinful and how gross and how rotten and how selfish I am. They don't really know because I just have a mask up there because there's at least this one thing, if not a dozen, that I've never spoken out loud. But whenever your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart and he knows everything. He knows what's in your heart. He sees it and he loves it. And he is your advocate. Jesus is our advocate against our own sin and the darkness it causes. Jesus is our advocate against the sin of others and the brokenness of the world and the darkness that that causes. Jesus is our advocate against our own hearts and the darkness that that causes. And he is sitting with you in the pain, squeezing your hand and saying, are you ready to walk out of this? And it is so good and so beautiful and I think that even that knowledge can change things in our, in our, in our minds and our hearts and our lives, but I would just ask you, just spend some time this week and just stare at that like the beautiful sunset that that is. Maybe if you're hearing the condemnation in your heart, just get alone with Jesus and say, Jesus, what are you saying to me? And let his words wash over you like waves that crash into the shore. Let's pray. Jesus, you are such a powerful and gentle advocate. And it is beautiful. And we don't know why that's the case. We don't know why you advocate for us, but you do and we love you for it and for so many other reasons. Would you be with us, Lord? Would you help us to accept the fact that you fight for us and alongside of us? That you hold our hands? even in the darkness. Amen.